leading us in our song time of worship this morning. This morning, we are going to take a little uh, step away from our current series in the Gospel of John. As you know, uh, we have been working our way through uh, the Gospel of John, and it's been a tremendous uh, exercise in just looking at Jesus. And so I really enjoyed that time, and I, I believe that you have as well. I wanted to just pause for a moment and deal with uh, a subject that actually came up in uh, our last message in John 7, and so we're going to deal with that this morning. And as the title of the message uh, gives away the subject uh, this morning, and our title this morning is Keeping Your Heart, or Keep Your Heart. And so we're going to talk about the heart, and I want to commend to you or recommend two resources, uh, even before I begin, uh, two books that I think are really helpful on this subject, and I don't do this very often, but I thought maybe I would do this this morning and just recommend these two resources. One of them is from a dead guy. His name is John Flavel, and uh, he's 17th century Puritan, and this book is entitled Keeping Your Heart. And so I recommend this book. You can write it down. You can look it up. Uh, it, is, it is not too big. It's kind of a little book. Uh, so it's, but it, the, the language is a little bit difficult, but still, if you want a dead guy, this is the guy to go to. Uh, with regard to keeping your heart. And so I recommend this book uh, first. And uh, if you want a guy who's alive, uh, this book is tremendous. And I highly recommend it. It's by a man named Craig Troxell. And uh, it's called With All Your Heart. You probably can't see it from, from there because the, the color is kind of monochromatic. But With All Your Heart uh, by Craig Troxell. And so I recommend this one. Uh, highly recommend this. It's a tremendous book. And so both of these resources are helpful, and they also are uh, some of the resources that I've used in developing this message this morning as I've put together my, my sermon. If you're a man here this morning and you participated in a ministry we had over a year ago, our men's ministry entitled LEAD, and you were at some of those messages, what I'm going to tell you this morning, what I'm going to teach this morning might sound familiar at points. Because this is a lesson that I had originally uh, designed and wrote for our men's ministry uh, about, well, it was over a year ago. And this is actually a message that I kind of built uh, from a, a man at a different church that taught it in a men's ministry. And so I took his lesson, his name's Jacob Hantla, and he kind of wrote, had this outline. And I took that and I kind of nurtured it a little bit and brought it here and taught it in lead. And now I've taken it and I've nurtured it a little bit more and I'm going to bring it to you here this morning. So, uh, as is always the case, I'm standing on, I'm standing on someone else's shoulders, uh, benefiting from uh, those who have gone before me. So, last week we heard these words from Jesus, John 7, verses 37 and 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you were with us last week, you remember that passage. You might recall John helps us understand what Jesus is talking about in that passage. He tells us that Jesus is speaking here of the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus, rivers of living water flow from our heart. As I explained this passage last week, I said, this refers to the Holy Spirit's power in our lives to nourish us kind of welling up inside of us, nourishing up us, and then nourishing others. The living waters of the Holy Spirit well up to nourish us and well out to nourish others. 
That's what we discussed last week. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my life, all too often, it doesn't feel like rivers of living water are flowing from my heart. When I'm angry, when I'm impatient, when I fall into temptation, when I doubt God's plan, when I doubt my future, when I feel lost, when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm anxious, when I'm tired, when I want to give up. Sometimes these emotions overwhelm me. And if there's any water in my life, well, it feels like a flash flood. And it's taking me downstream. If it's true, and I believe it is true, that out of our hearts, as Jesus said, flow rivers of living water. If that's true, then why is the river so dry in my life? I believe there's a passage that corresponds with Jesus' words in John 7. And I believe that passage reveals the answer to my question. If John 7.38 describes what's indicative of the believer, well, Proverbs 4.23 tells us or offers an imperative to the believer. If Jesus tells us what is characteristic of the believer in John 7.38... Proverbs 4.23, Solomon in Proverbs 4.23, tells us what is commanded. The words, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, you might say are stamped on one side of the coin, and the words from Proverbs 4.23 are stamped on the other side of the coin. Now, I realize that this morning we just have a single verse to read, but I'm compelled to ask you to stand even if it's one verse, I'm compelled to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And so, if you would, please navigate, find your way to Proverbs 4, 23, and we'll read this very significant verse from Scripture. I'm going to read it, and then I'll pray. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Let's pray. God in heaven, we feel the weight of such a passage, such a reality before us, Lord. We know it's true. You have given us this wonderful promise. Your Savior, Jesus, gave us this wonderful promise that out of our hearts will flow rivers of living water. And yet so often we feel so dry. And so we have this command in front of us to keep our hearts. This is a big thing to, to approach, Lord. And so I pray, God, this morning as we talk about our hearts, talk about how we might keep our hearts, talk about what's true in the believer's life, that in fact rivers of living water flow from our hearts, that all of this, Lord, would work for your glory and it would work to help us to hate our sin, to love you and to love your righteousness, Lord, and help us, Lord, to pursue it with all vigilance. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The big idea this morning is this. 
Three questions reveal what we must do to keep the rivers of living water flowing from our heart. I know there's a lot of words there, but we're going to see a why, a what, and a how, basically, in this text. Three questions reveal what we must do to keep the rivers of living water flowing from our heart. But before we answer those questions or we look at those questions, we have to kind of unpack or review, at least, the biblical understanding of the heart. I say review because we do talk about the heart, but it's important for us to, to work through this again and unpack what does the Bible mean when it talks about the heart. The heart is a dominant theme in the Bible. The word heart is used over a thousand times in the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament. It's used very, very often. However, there is confusion about the meaning of this word, our heart, or the idea of our heart. When we think of the heart, well, we oftentimes think of the notions of romance, We think about Valentine's Day. Or we use the heart in sports. We often talk about, you know, he plays with a lot of heart. Maybe you've heard that phrase. We think of our heart as the emotional organ and the mind as the thinking organ. Two different things. But, as we'll see, the Bible doesn't support that idea. The Bible teaches us there's a connection between our heart and our thinking. In fact, they are inseparable. Yes, the brain processes data, it organizes and processes data, but the heart directs those activities. The Bible doesn't segregate our emotions and our thinking. The Bible only speaks of an inner and an outer being, an inner man and an outer man. The outer person is our physical self, and the inner being, the inner man, is, well, It's our spiritual self inside. The Bible uses heart to describe that inner or spiritual person inside. Therefore, the heart is the controlling source of our life. All our thoughts, our desires, our discernments and decisions, our plans and our purposes, our affections, our attitudes and our ambitions— All the wisdom and all the folly that mark our lives come out of and are fueled, service and driven by, well, our hearts. Paul prays in Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. You know this prayer. It supports this idea. He prays, of course, to the Ephesians or for the Ephesian church. He prays that God would grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit, he says, in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell where? In your hearts, he says. Through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to do what? To comprehend. That's a mind word. To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know, again, knowledge, and to know the love of God, which, he says, surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul connects the inner being and the heart. The inner being is the heart. And then he connects our thinking, what we know, what we understand, to that inner being, that heart. Because the heart is the controlling source of our life, the term captures the, the totality or the unity of our inner nature. Troxel says in his book, it's like a hidden control center in every person. Everything we think, we desire, we choose, 
and live out is generated from this one controlling source. And it's governed from this one point. As goes the heart, he says, so goes the man. It is the helm of the ship. The heart is what makes the person who they are. The center of our personality. It's the command center of our life. Remember the story of Samuel. He goes to Bethlehem to find the next king of Israel. Of course, you know the story. Remember what the Lord told Samuel, how to to identify who that king would be. He says, Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? He looks on the heart, the inner man. It's the heart that needs to be appraised, is what God is saying. It's only with an internal audit that true character is to be determined. However, the term heart not only captures the unity of, of our inner nature, but a trinity of functions related to to that. The mind, the desires, and the will all exist in the heart. In this way, we can speak of both a unity and a complexity found in the descriptions of the heart. From a central source, one place, unity, we find what we know, what we love, and what we choose. A unity and a complexity. Troxel says, to put it another way, the heart includes what we know, that is, our knowledge, our thoughts, our intentions, our ideas, meditation, memory, imagination, what we love, what we want, seek, feel, yearn for, and what we choose. Whether we will resist or submit, whether we will be weak or strong, whether we will say yes or no. No other word combines the complex interplay of intellect, sensibility, and will. You do a search and you can look at all the adjectives that the Bible puts next to the heart. It's fascinating. Listen to all the ways the heart is described in the Bible and try not to get sick of it. Adulterous, anguished, arrogant astray, bitter, blameless, blighted, broken, calloused, circumcised, contrite, crushed, darkened, deadened, deceitful, deluded, Devoted, disloyal, envious, evil, faint, faithful, far off, fearful, foolish, grateful, happy, hard, haughty, Humble, mad, malicious, obstinate, perverse, proud, 
pure, rebellious, rejoicing, responsive, righteous, sick, sincere, sinful, steadfast, unfeeling, uncircumcised, upright, unsearchable, weary, wicked, wise, and wounded. Aren't you glad there's no Z's? It's a lot, huh? I think this paints a pretty good picture of how the heart is, is used to describe that single part of each person through which the complexities of our knowledge, our loves, and our decisions come. If the Lord emphasized the heart when Samuel was seeking Israel's king, well, Jesus, he emphasized the heart. All too often, Matthew 12, 34, he, remember he spoke to the Pharisees saying, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He told his disciples in Mark 7, 21 through 23, that out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. In his Sermon on the Mount, he commanded, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you value? What you value, what you treasure, reveals the condition of your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. So, to summarize, what is the heart? The heart is the real you. It's the essential core of who you are, Troxel writes. It's the governing center of a person. When used simply, it reflects the unity of our inner being. When used comprehensively, it describes the complexity of our inner being as composed of mind, as we've said, what we know, desires, what we love, and our will, what we choose. All of this is your heart. And so, with this understanding in mind, we come then to our first question, this is our outline now, that reveals what we must do to keep the rivers of living water flowing in our life. First question, I'm going to start with why. Why must I keep my heart? Why must I keep my heart? Well, again, we're studying Proverbs 4.23. Because from our heart flows the springs of life. That's why. The text says it. Notice the, the, the Hebrew word picture. It's that of a spring. The heart is seen as a spring in which water flows out. This confirms what we already discovered about the heart. The heart is the source or the origin of our life. In the same way that water flows from a spring, or our actions flow from our heart. In fact, as it says, our very life flows from our heart. Consider how this relates to an unbeliever, a person who does not know Christ, the unregenerate man. What is flowing from the spring of an unbeliever? Well, the water flowing from that man's spring must be tainted. It has been poisoned. 
It's a poisoned well. It's a poisoned spring. That's what Jesus says in Mark 7. We just read it. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, etc. You know what the prophet Jeremiah said about the heart, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it, he says. You remember why God destroyed the earth with a flood, right? Genesis 6, 5 tells us why. God says, every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. This is how the Bible describes the heart of the unbeliever, the unregenerate man. When you put together the perverse characteristics of man's heart and the heart as the source or origin of life, we're not surprised to read the summary in Romans 3. Remember, this is, if we don't know Christ, this describes us. And this describes us before we knew Christ. This was each one of us. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's not them. That's us. And it's us, if we don't know Christ, it's us right now. But it was us before Christ. Therefore, collectively, we are a massive spring producing putrid water. We are a poisoned well. What kind of water does a poisoned well produce? Well, how then does this relate to a believer, to a regenerate person? What does it look like? In his case or her case. Well, Ezekiel 36, 26 is a helpful passage. Although this passage is speaking about Israel in the future. It's what it is a promise for or about. We are beneficiaries of the new covenant promises now. And so this promise is ours today. Ezekiel 36, 26. He writes, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That heart of stone is removed and we have a new heart now as believers, as those who know Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says we are a new creation. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's talking about a new heart. The heart of stone is gone. Now it's a heart of flesh. Romans 6, 17 says that as partakers of the new covenant in our new creation state, we are able now to be obedient from the heart. Listen to this. Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin as unbelievers, we were slaves of sin, past tense, you were, now we have become obedient, he says, as believers, we have become obedient from the heart, he says, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The Puritan John Flavel said, the heart of man is his worst part before salvation, and it is his best part after it. That's the transformation. It's a new heart. 
new knowledge, new loves, new choices, new desires are all ours because we're a new creation. In fact, one of the crowning achievements of redemptive history is the power to put to death sin. I hope you understand that. In this current era, this new covenant era, it's unlike any era in redemptive history because we have a new heart. The Old Testament believer didn't have that. He had to go offer a sacrifice. And if the Holy Spirit came down, it left him. But now we have the power of the indwelling spirit that that resides within us. And we have the ability to put to death sin and live obedient lives for Jesus. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, Jesus said, John 7, 38. Where you and I before Christ had no power to keep, to guard, to shepherd our hearts, now in Christ we are able to not sin. We are able to shepherd our hearts. So, why do we keep our hearts? That's the first question. We keep our hearts because everything flows from our heart. The springs of living water flow from our heart. Everything flows from the heart. There's a second question. What must I do with my heart? Well, what does it say? You must keep your heart. That's what you must do. You must keep your heart. Because our heart is the spring of life, we have to protect the well. Maybe you have a different translation than our ESV Bible that you're looking at. The different translations draw this out a little bit differently. In the NASB, the NASB, it says, watch over your heart. The CSB has guard your heart. I like the NIV. Above all else, it says, guard your heart. They're, they're, they're kind of helping us a little bit. They're over-translating it. Above all else, do this. That's how important it is. The idea is, of course, to keep, to watch over, to guard, even protect our heart. The word picture is a kind of citadel, a fortress. You imagine a, a city or a fortress on a, on a hill, you know, that, that strong tower that sticks out in the corner, right? That's that citadel. That's that fortress. Well, what happens if that gets trampled? If, if they take that strong tower, what happens to the city below it? It's gone. Charles Bridges, in his commentary, he uses this illustration. If, if the citadel be taken, the whole town must surrender. If the heart be seized... The whole man, he says, the affections, the desires, the motives, the pursuits, all will be yielded up. The heart, the citadel of man, the seat of his dearest treasure. It is is fearful to think of its many watchful and subtle assailants. Let it be closely garrisoned, he says. Keep your heart. J.C. Ryle said, every Christian heart is a field occupied by two rival camps. Remember that new heart is put in the flesh. That's always the struggle. That's actually what the new creation is. The new creation doesn't mean you never sin. It means God has 
given you this transformed heart inside of this fleshly shell. It doesn't mean you'll never sin. It means now you have the power to not sin. Now you can fight where before you couldn't fight, but now you can. Another word picture comes from the modern use of the word keep, like a safety catch on a weapon. What does the safety do on a firearm? It holds the hammer in place. I think that's what it does. I actually don't know much about that, but I can imagine that it holds the hammer. It keeps watch of it. It makes sure that it will not move. How are we to keep our hearts? In the same way that safety catch holds the hammer back, it makes sure that it never moves. That's how you keep your heart. Troxel again, to guard the heart is the one great business of a Christian life. Actually, he quotes Flavel there. <laughs> They're working with each other. It is where you keep your treasure, and the treasury must be protected. You can apply yourself to everything else in life with great energy and success. But if you neglect the heart, then you have missed the crucial thing, the most necessary thing. The heart is the first order of business because everything begins here. Friends, I think we've stumbled upon the focus of the Christian life. That's what this is. It's where we start. It's the beginning. Proverbs 4.23 reveals what must be addressed in the Christian life. When I understand that my choices and my actions always reveal the desires that rule my heart then I understand that I must guard my heart. This morning I was rude to my wife. You know why? Because she reminded me to put distilled water in the iron. I know that. Of course you do that. And I responded to her in a sinful way. I had a choice to make in that moment. I could have went downstairs and ignored it, let it fester. She could have remained upstairs and let my bitterness fester in her heart. I had a choice to make. Am I going to shepherd my heart? What am I going to do? What do we sometimes do when we sin against each other? Oh, I was just kidding. I didn't mean that. Your mouth reveals what's in your heart. You weren't kidding. And you did mean that. So the solution is not to say, oh, I was just joking. Or come up with some excuse. The, the, the solution is to say, when I said, said that, it was sin. Will you please forgive me? I wasn't kidding. Because my mouth reveals the condition of my heart. And I, was, and I sinned. And so I went upstairs and I said, when I said that, that was sin. Will you please forgive me? And you see, what, what, I, what have I done now? Now, it's, now the ball's in her court. Because now what does she get to do? She gets to demonstrate the goodness and grace of God by saying, husband, I forgive you. And that means I'm not going to bring it up to myself and I'm not going to bring it up to you ever again. 
And now I can go back downstairs and finish my ironing and she can go about her business and there's no bitterness. It's all gone. Because we've shepherded our hearts effectively. I know you're not supposed to use a good illustration from yourself as a pastor, but I'm sorry. It wasn't in my notes. It just happened this morning. What does it look like to guard, to keep watch over, to shepherd your heart? Well, we must address the inner man. We cannot be content to put a bandage on the wound. Paul Tripp, another fabulous author that talks about the heart a lot, if you're familiar with his book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, probably the best book on parenting you could ever purchase or read. It's phenomenal. He says, desires are a part of human existence, but they must be held with an open hand. And borrowing an illustration from from him, he says, let's say you're seeking a new position or a promotion at work. You begin to pray that God would open up that opportunity. After some time, your, your prayers begin to morph and your desires begin to morph into demands. First, you were praying for that promotion, and now you're demanding that you get that promotion. Your open hands have become clenched fists over your desires. Lord, give me this promotion becomes, Lord, I must have this promotion. Now, God's will has turned from something you desire to something you are threatened by. Maybe he won't give me this promotion this point you cannot conceive of a good life outside of obtaining what you want even your relationship with others begins to change you begin to use people in order to get what you want and if those people cannot help you get what you want they become an obstacle and they must be removed downward spiral what happens next well our heart's desire becomes a need we've moved from god your will be done to God I must have, to God I will have. At this point, your promotion is essential to life, and you have become a slave to your desires. When you don't get that promotion, when retirement isn't what you expected, when your life isn't shaping up to be what you thought, when the pursuit of your desires moves from an open hand to a clenched fist, What are you to do? What are we to do? Here's what I'm trying to get at. You must address the inner man. You must guard your heart. You must keep your heart. Watch over your heart. If our vines are producing bad grapes, we can't just go to to Greg's farm or Royce's farm or Ben's farm and tear the, the fruit off, and come over to our vines and staple it up. We can't do that. How are we going to produce good fruit? Not, rip, not from ripping it off someone else. We must fertilize the soil. We must water it. Prune the branches. Then we'll produce good grapes. You and I need to produce heart, pursue, excuse me, heart change. What does my obsession with getting a promotion reveal about my inner man? What does it reveal about my trust in God? 
What do the disappointments of my retirement reveal about my joy in God and my expectation for heaven? When I lie, what does it say about who I fear most, God or man? When I'm afraid to evangelize, tell others about Jesus, the God that I love, that I say I love, what does that fear say about my heart? When I know that I should seek forgiveness for my brother, but I don't do it, what does it say about my heart? When I try to manipulate, to control people or things, what does it say about my understanding of God's sovereignty and His providence? When I look at pornography, what does it say about my love for my wife? Or if you're a woman, what does it say about your love for your husband? With these questions, we're trying to move from the outer man, of course, to that inner man. Assessing the heart. Understand, trying to convince you from Proverbs 4.23. First, that your very life flows from your heart. Second, that you and I are called to watch over our heart. A why and a what. There's a third question. A how. How must I keep my heart? Or... In what manner? In what manner are we to keep our hearts? Well, what does it say? With all vigilance is what it says. Keep your heart with all vigilance. What does it mean to be vigilant? To be alert. To be watchful. To be eagle-eyed. To be wakeful, on guard. This word translated here in the Old Testament, vigilance, often used of the Old Testament to alert people to be careful for their own good. Moses uses it quite often. Be careful, he says, almost over and over in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Be careful to do all that I have commanded you. That's that same word there. In fact, the Pentateuch uses this, uh, well, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses a, a synonym for keep. And so in this passage, if you were to read it kind of in the Greek translation, it would be something like Keep, keep, guard, keep on guarding. So it's kind of a double idea. Keep with all vigilance, keep keeping on. Underlining it, if you would. You must understand the Bible isn't suggesting that we put up a cheap security camera or we buy a guard dog. The Bible is suggesting we do more than that. Remember during the Cold War era? I don't even know if they still have this NORAD. Remember what NORAD was? If you're older, maybe you do. If you're younger, you probably have no idea. Well, during the Cold War era, our nation decided that it was critical to protect our nation against a nuclear attack. So they built NORAD. They needed uh, to guard the operations and leaders of our country against a direct attack. Well, what did they do? Again, they didn't put up a camera or call Cujo. They did much more than that. They built a bunker under 2,000 feet of granite, the door of which was three and a half wide and over 2,000 pounds, a 25-ton door, excuse me. They built the most secure facility in the world. 
the ability to watch over this country was so significant that they built NORAD. Well, how significant is it in your life to keep your heart? What kind of bunker have you built? Now, you know who wrote Proverbs 4? Solomon wrote this, right? How well did he guard his heart? Did he guard it well? Did he take his own advice? 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart, it says. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. His heart was turned away. What kind of guard did Solomon set? What kind of guard have you set on your heart? Psalm 119, 9 Ask the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? If there's any verse in Psalm 119 that we memorize, it's usually this one. How can a man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. That's what it says. By guarding it. By watching over it. The way. Watching over my way. By what standard? According to your word. This verse teaches us that we keep our way pure by the standard of God's word. Filling our minds and our hearts with scripture is akin to a soldier digging a ditch. We're digging that trench. As we're digging that trench, we're preparing ourselves against the enemy. We're positioning ourselves in a defensive place so we can't get attacked, we can't be killed. But at the same time, we're, we're setting an offensive as well where we can attack when need be. Going to Scripture is like digging that trench to protect and position ourselves. Scripture is that weapon we need to fend off temptation. It's the channel to keeping ourselves pure. It's the technique to shepherding our hearts. You know what Jesus said when, when Satan tried to tempt him? Three times, it is written, it is written, it is written. He went to the Word. Earlier I shared an illustration from Charles Bridges. He compared the heart to a citadel, a fortress, a bunker. If the citadel is taken, you recall, then the city, our entire being, as the metaphor goes, will be trampled. We're building upon that illustration. If the heart is a fortress, then our eyes and our ears, well, they're the gatekeepers. Again, if the heart is a fortress, the eyes and the ears are the gatekeepers. Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. See how they're connected? How about Matthew 6, 22 and 23? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, Jesus says, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Proverbs 7.21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. What are we looking at? What are we listening to? These are the gatekeepers. They reveal whether or not the fortress is being attacked. With our eyes and our ears, we let the enemy seize the fortress of our heart. Press the metaphor a little bit further. If the eyes and the ears are the gatekeepers, then the mouth is the ambassador. The ambassador to the city. Matthew 15, 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives what? His heart, James says. This person's religion is worthless. Our words reveal the condition of our heart. They are the heart's diplomat. We need look no further than our speech to see whether or not the citadel has been trampled. Three questions reveal what we must do to keep the rivers of living water flowing from our heart. Why must we keep our hearts? Why must I keep my heart? Because the rivers of, of, of life spring from my heart. What must I do with my heart? Well, I must keep it. Again, guard it. Watch over it. And how? How am I to do that? How must I keep my heart? In what manner? With all vigilance. We must guard our hearts above all else. As I said in my introduction, John 7, 38, I believe, is the indicative. This is what it says is true of the believer. Proverbs 4, 23 offers the imperative to the believer. If Jesus tells us what is characteristic of the believer in John 7, 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, well, he tells us what is commanded in Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart, for from it flow springs of living life, living water. For from it flow the, the springs of life, excuse me. Again, I've tried to capture this with the idea of a coin. If on one side of the coin it says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, while on the other side of the coin is stamped, keep your heart with all vigilance, an indicative and an imperative what's characteristic, and what's commanded. Both are true at the same time. I'm sure you're thankful that the city of Bakersfield tests the water. I'm sure your, you, your kids or your grandkids appreciate the fact that you test the water in your pool. I'm sure they're thankful for that. Likewise, each of us must water, monitor the water that comes from our hearts. When's the last time you tested the water flowing from your heart? Took a pH test of that water that's coming out of your heart. A couple things to consider, some questions. Maybe you want to jot these down. How about a water purity test for the heart? Do you usually sense a presence or absence of affection for God? 
Do you have an appetite for God? Are you daily shepherding your heart to God in His Word? Do your routines, including entertainment choices, internet use, free time, priorities, do all of these reflect that you are guarding your heart above all else? How do your prayers reflect the vigilance with which you guard your heart? What lures your heart away from God? How diligently do you flee from it? Now, wherever and whenever the water purity check reveals impurity, here's what you have to do. You have to flip the coin over. You have to remember who you are in Christ. Out of, out of your heart flows rivers of living water. That's true of you. You see impurity, you got to keep your heart. This, this is what the Christian life is. It's flipping that coin back and forth, remembering who you are in Christ and what God has commanded you to do. It's true that rivers of living water will flow from your heart. It doesn't mean you're not to do anything. You have to keep your heart. Because for, for, from your heart flow rivers of living water. Both are true. The indicative and the imperative. This is the process of shepherding your heart. Reminding yourself of your identity and laboring to live in light of that identity. Of course, we have to remember, as we close here, that we guard our hearts in the shadow of the cross. We guard our hearts in the shadow of the cross. Troxel says, I love this sentence, just as nothing in our nature has escaped the wreckage of sin, so also nothing in our nature escapes the touch of His reforming grace. You know, He is our keeper close with psalm 121 actually can i invite you to stand as we close i know we're going to sing another song but psalm 121 is a helpful reminder that god hasn't left us to keep our hearts alone that we do guard our hearts in the shadow of the cross and with his help psalm 121 i lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Joel, will you serve us?